Hello, listeners. Before we get started, we want to thank our new sponsor, Answer One, for its support of this show. Their virtual reception service is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to handle inbound calls, schedule appointments, and even respond to emails. Check them out at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. And now, on to the show. Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazer series. My name is Victor Lee, and I'm an assistant managing editor with the ABA Journal. Today, I'll be chatting with one of the true giants in the legal tech world, Judge Andrew Peck. Appointed as a U.S. magistrate judge for the Southern District of New York on February 27, 1995, he announced his retirement 23 years later to the day, capping a career that saw him serve as chief magistrate judge in 2004-2005 while writing some of the most influential opinions on the topic of electronic discovery. His opinions approving the use of predictive coding in e-discovery helped give that technology much-needed credibility, especially in the face of a legal industry that's historically been skeptical of technology and change. Judge Peck won't be spending his retirement in leisure, however. He joined DLA Piper in early April. It truly is a pleasure to have you here with us today, Judge Peck. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Victor. Well, so I went through your background a little bit. So I guess just to start with, what made you decide to become a lawyer? I guess I would say a combination of watching Perry Mason and other similar shows on television, being an avid mystery fan and approaching the lawyering aspect of things as if that's somewhat uh, a detective solving the case And also just uh, having been a government major at Cornell, going to law school after that seemed like the logical next step. And I read in your bio that you're a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. Did that play into your decision as well? Absolutely. I've been a member of the Baker Street Irregulars since college. My investiture in the Baker Street Irregulars is Inspector Baines of the Surrey Constabulary, one of the few official police detectives that Holmes had nice things to say about. And because of that, and because of my interest in mysteries, the legal field seemed like a logical outreach of that. And certainly I'm not good enough to be a detective, so going into law was the next best thing. Gotcha. Well, when we spoke the other day, you had mentioned that you did have a background in computers and math, that you started out doing that before you uh, switched over to government. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether that helped or did not help you as you made the transition to the bench and started handling cases that involved the technological component to them? It really had no help at all. Uh, You have to remember back in the early 1970s, I was trying not to make typos as we had to batch in punch cards, give it to the people running the mainframe, and then come in the next morning to see the results of that. A very different world from emails, the internet, et cetera, et cetera, today. So yes, that's what I started in law school. And as the math courses got harder and harder, and I realized I was never going to be a mathematician. And as I did not have the same drive 
as I saw some of my classmates who would batch in their homework assignment, but then, you know, batch in another group of cards where they were trying to, you know, design things for their own fun or possible later success in life, I realized I just didn't have that drive and switched to become a government major at that point, knowing I would go to law school, which had always been in the back of my mind a little. So how did you get involved in, I mean, obviously as a judge, you have to take the cases that are assigned to you and, you know, it's not like you can actively seek out things, but how did you get involved in talking about technology, writing about technology and learning about technology? Well, I had an early case, anti-monopoly against Hasbro in 1995, where the plaintiff was seeking certain sales data from the defendants, and they gave it to him in certain printouts, and he was looking to get it in a more digital form. And about the only thing still memorable about the case is I said, in my opinion, that by then looking at other decisions already out there. By then, it was black-letter law that computerized information could be discoverable. That quote was something that Judge Shinlin liked to put in law review articles in the 90s as we were still advancing towards a field called e-discovery. Then in 2005-2006, I had been speaking for the ABA employment law section at their winter retreats And they said, we'd like you to come back another year, but we don't have a topic in mind. Could you suggest something? So I thought about it and was familiar with what became the December 2006 rules amendments. I suggested to them that it might be a good idea for me to educate the section on those. They agreed. I spoke about it. One of the legal press reported almost one line in an otherwise long article about other things. You know, Judge Peck spoke about the forthcoming rules amendments. A month later, I get a call from the New York City Bar Association. Judge Peck, we see you're an expert on the forthcoming new rules. Would you speak for us at it? And I enjoyed talking about the rules. I enjoyed all that came from that. And as the invitations kept coming, I kept saying yes, and I learned at conferences things that would then be useful either when the appropriate case came in front of me or to continue talking in the field. And then, of course, the e-discovery cases started landing on my desk in my day job, so to speak. So obviously, you're perhaps best known for your decisions on predictive coding or technology-assisted review. Can you talk a little bit about those cases and how you approach your decision-making in those cases? Sure. Well, first of all, I was lucky in that I had a leg up. Six months or so before the Silver Moor, I had been asked to give the keynote at the first Carmel Valley e-discovery retreat out in California. And I said, okay, what do you want me to speak about? And they said, I don't know, why don't you talk about search and technology, et cetera. And so I gave that talk. Several people in the audience who I respected came up to me afterwards and said, that was great. You really need to write about it. And I wrote the article Search Forward that appeared in Law Technology News, as it was then called. And then about two months or so after that, the DeSilvermore case landed randomly 
assigned to me. And that was the first case in the United States or really anywhere in which the issue of predictive coding or technology-assisted review, TAR as it's now called, was before a U.S. judge. And so I was able to take what I had already learned and read about and published in Search Forward and turn that into a judicial opinion stating that I was now, for the first time, officially approving the use of predictive coding in appropriate cases when done appropriately, giving the imprimatur that lawyers at conferences had told me they were waiting because nobody wanted to be the guinea pig that might be in the first case and have it come out the wrong way. Gotcha. One thing that I don't think I asked you yesterday is, it's kind of interesting how, because I mean, cases get assigned randomly, right, when they're divvied up by the judges, or is there a method to the madness? And the, the reason why I ask this is because, you know, obviously, you know, you got this case where you had an interest in, I think Judge Shinlin, I'd spoken to her before, and she, when she was doing the Zubalake case, you know, she obviously didn't think it was going to be a anything more than a garden variety employment dispute, but then that became much more. And she had always had an interest in that area as well. So it's kind of weird how these cases end up going to the judges that have an interest in these areas. And maybe if they hadn't, you know, we wouldn't have the laws or the opinions that we do now. Well, but it is totally random. In the Southern District of New York, when a case is filed, it is assigned to a district judge and a magistrate judge is designated to it. It is then up to the district judge whether to refer the case to the magistrate judge, and if so, for what? It could be for all purposes. It could just be for discovery. It could just be to conduct a settlement conference and try to settle the case, and that's the way it works. And if I am the designated magistrate judge, but I don't have an expertise in that, you know, the district judge can't say, oh, well, I'd rather give it to Magistrate Judge X instead. It doesn't work that way. We're generalists. We help each other out, of course. Uh, you know, we'll talk about things amongst ourselves, but in terms of who has to deal with the case, it has to be the judge that is designated to it. So I guess sometimes the law works in mysterious ways, huh? <laughs> Hello, listeners. This is Lee Rawls from the ABA Journal. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. Is your firm experiencing missed calls, empty voicemail boxes, and potential clients you'll never hear from again? Enter Answer One Virtual Receptionists. They're more than just an answering service. Answer One's available 24-7. They can even schedule appointments, respond to emails, integrate with Clio, and much more. Answer One helps make sure your clients have the experience they deserve. Give them a call at 800-ANSWER-1, that's the number one, or visit them at answerone.com forward slash podcast for a special offer. Welcome back to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels podcast. We now return to our show, which is already in progress. So one thing I wanted to ask you is, have you been surprised that predictive coding or TAR hasn't necessarily caught on? I mean, did you ever think that when you started writing these opinions that it would become the default option for lawyers engaged in e-discovery at some point? Uh, I think I have to give you a somewhat long answer to that. First of all, the case law has advanced enough so that I was able to say in the Rio Tinto decision that by now it is black-letter law that if the responding party, the producing party, wants to use TAR, that the courts will allow it. And I believe that is the state of the law, not only in the United States, 
but in the rest of what I guess we could call the former British Commonwealth countries. TAR has been approved by court decisions, two court decisions at least in the United Kingdom, a decision, the Irish Bank against Quinn case in Ireland. And while our e-discovery process just requires reasonableness and proportionality, officially their discovery requires perfection and production of every relevant document or electronically stored information. Nevertheless, the court there in a highly contested decision approved the use of predictive coding. Finally, most recently, in two decisions and in a rules change in Australia, they have recognized the use of predictive coding. So in that sense, the use of predictive coding is accepted almost worldwide, certainly in the common law countries. In terms of how often it's used, you're right, I would have expected that parties would be using it more often. Nevertheless, keywords are still the prevalent search methodology, and TAR is still a minority use. Although I would say, based on my experience the last six months or so I was on the bench, because most of the issues about TAR have been determined by decisions, parties are using TAR without dispute, therefore there won't be a written court decision talking about it. So I had cases where just conferences in passing the lawyers would say to me, oh, yeah, we're using TAR, or the other side is using TAR. And that was sort of it. It was a, you know, a nothing discussion, not an issue. I think a combination of lawyer fear of technology, concerns that before the wrong judge, the legal disputes about the use of TAR, if the other side objects, might eat up the cost savings, and I hate to be cynical, but the perverse incentive, TAR saves money. If one is throwing you know, a large group of associates, paralegals, or contract attorneys at keyword search documents, that is you know, profit per person for the law firm. So there is somewhat of a disincentive for law firms to use TAR, except to the extent they want to do the right thing for their client and therefore get more business in the future, as opposed to earning more money on that particular case. Gotcha. Fast forward into the present now. So as you were leaving the bench, you probably had several job offers. What drew you to DLA Piper? Several things. First, they were one of the firms that approached me. I did not go out using a headhunter or in any other way approaching firms. They have a long-standing e-discovery presence. The late Browning Marine out of their San Diego office was what we called, you know, the Pied Piper of e-discovery. He spent innumerable days, weeks, hours on the road speaking at e-discovery conferences, helping newer folks in the e-discovery world meet others uh, with comparable interests, etc., And so to be able to sort of take Browning's role is something that was very, very appealing to me. And DLA wants me to continue speaking on the discovery circuit and attending conferences. In addition, I've had a longstanding interest from my days in private practice before going on the bench 
in copyright and trademark litigation. And one of my former law clerks is the New York head of DLA's copyright and trademark practice. So that was another factor drawing me to the firm. In addition, obviously, it is the number one or number two firm in terms of worldwide size. So it gives me a very big platform for e-discovery with the GDPR coming into effect uh, at the end of May, etc. Finally, at DOA, I will be able to do arbitration, mediation, and special master work if anyone wants me for those areas. And one of the things I want to do and DOA is happy for me to do is take pro se cases in the Southern District of New York that are trial ready and have young associates at the firm get trial experience by trying those cases under my very loose supervision. Fair enough. Looking ahead, what are some trends in e-discovery that you think are worth keeping an eye on? Obviously, the GDPR and how that affects U.S. litigation involving companies with uh, information abroad is going to be a big factor. And frankly, GDPR and the privacy-related regulations with that will be affecting business for corporations, even if they're not in litigation. That's a very, very big factor. Artificial intelligence is being much talked about, and we'll see if that develops any faster than predictive coding and TAR did, but that's something that's worth keeping an eye on. And finally, the Internet of Things and all these devices. You know, we went from paper memos and letters in the old days to email, and all of that is now passe. And when you're in discovery, you have to think about text messages and, you know, what information is on mobile devices, what information can be gathered from other IoT devices. You know, so far, much of that Fitbit and Amazon Echo data have started showing up in possible criminal matters. At some point, we're going to see more of that on the civil e-discovery side. And finally, cybersecurity and privacy are both factors that not just in a GDPR sense, but after the recent Facebook fiasco, shall we say, you know, we may actually start considering privacy here in the United States. (laughs) Great. Uh, That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us, Judge. And um, if our listeners would like to get in touch with you for whatever reason, what's the best way to do it? Best way is to contact me at DLA. My email there is andrew.peck at dlapiper.com and or, you know, looking me up on the DLA website and getting my phone number and things through that. Great. You've been listening to the ABA Journal's Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. If you like what you hear, please check us out on iTunes. This is Victor Lee signing off. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalRebels.com, LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download the free apps from ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, 
representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.